much it. My name is Sophie. Um, fun facts about me before we start. I feel like it's always good to know the person who's going to be, you know, talking at you for the next 30 minutes, even if it's just a little something. Uh, my name's Sophie. I go to Edgehill, like I'm sure most people in this room also do. I study nursing. I'm in my second year. Whoop, whoop. Um, my favourite food is mashed potato. That's the best fact you're going to get about me. Okay. This evening, I'm going to be sharing a story from the Bible found in the book of Luke. I know it's crazy. You come to a Christian event put on by the community church, and I'm going to speak to you about the Bible. What are the odds? I don't know. In this story, we read about Jesus being invited to have a meal at Mary and Martha's house. Now, when I say Mary, I don't mean Jesus' mother, Mary. Just like we have about 7 million Sophies and 7 million Jameses and Jacks and Johns, in the Bible times, Mary was that equivalent. There were like a gajillion Marys, so just so we don't get confused. Now, I don't know if anybody went to Sunday school here. I don't know if you're a Christian, non-Christian, but some people have a little bit of know-how about the Bible and some don't. Mary and Martha were the sisters of this famous guy called Lazarus. Some of you may have heard the story about Jesus and Lazarus and Jesus calling Lazarus back from the dead. He says, Lazarus, come forth. Anybody know that story ringing a bell? It's okay if it's not. Just trying to set some, some context, some groundwork. Anyway, Mary and Martha, they invite Jesus to their house for dinner. So Jesus comes in, he sits in one room with Mary, and they're having a conversation, and they're spending time together, and Martha is in the kitchen. She's being very busy, cooking up a storm, pulling out all the stops, because it's Jesus, right? Mary and Martha were Jews like Jesus, and they had been waiting a long time for someone that was prophesied to be a savior, a messiah. So a lot of Jews at this time, they came to believe that Jesus was this Messiah guy. They came around to this idea that this famous guy who they'd been waiting for for years and years and years was finally here. So it was a big deal. They thought that this savior was going to save them from the Romans who were living amongst them, who were ruling over them. That's what they thought. So Jesus was a big deal. Everyone sort of knew about him. He was going around doing a bunch of healings. People would have known about him. They would have wanted to speak to him. So Mary and Martha were like, why not have him for dinner? Have him over for a spot of scram. Why not? However, we know the famous story of Jesus and how he actually came to die on a cross and save us from ourselves. So on and so forth. You get the point. The point I'm trying to, point I'm trying to make is that Jesus was a, a big deal. So inviting Jesus into their homes was an absolute honor. For example, my flatmate, one of whom is here, Jade, give us a wave. I have three, Jade, Beth, and Emily. My flatmates love celebs like Rihanna and Dylan O'Brien. It's like inviting this level of famous into your house. It's understandable that Martha wanted to do her best and impress Jesus. Mary, however, was just content to sit at Jesus' feet and be with him. Now, what I'm about to say is not a trick question, but which sister would you like to be if you had a choice? Personally, I'd like to be Gutsy Mary. She's sitting and hanging out with a famous person like it's no big deal. I mean, if we're talking reality though, I'm probably a Martha. 
desperate to impress and prove myself. If Florence Pugh showed up at my door, I'd totally pretend I could cook something sick and act as though I was the coolest, slickest fan she had ever met. I'd probably try and think of some really like niche shows she'd been in and like casually bring it up in conversation like it was no big deal. I mean, I don't want Florence Pugh to know that I actually can't cook and that I burn most toast that I make. I don't want her to know any of my messiness. Only the best bits of Sophie, you know what I'm saying? So with this in mind, let's read this story in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. Now the reason I just spilled for the last five minutes is because this is the kind of context I want us to head into this story with. Is that okay? So, Luke 10. As they continued their travel, Jesus entered a village. A woman by the name of Martha welcomed him and made him feel quite at home. She had a sister, Mary, who sat before the master, hanging on every word he said. But Martha was pulled away by all she had to do in the kitchen. Later, she stepped in, interrupting them. Master, don't you care that my sister has abandoned the kitchen to me? Tell her to lend me a hand. The master said, Martha, dear Martha, you're fussing far too much in getting yourself worked up over nothing. One thing only is essential, and Mary has chosen it. It's the main course and won't be taken from her. Right, what are we thinking? First thing that jumps out to me is how awkward do you reckon Jesus would have felt when Martha was like, <laughs> Tell my sister off for not helping me. I'd imagine you could cut the cringe with a knife. The second thing that jumps out to me is that Martha got so distracted with serving and preparing for her guests and for Jesus, because Jesus likely would have come with a, a large crowd, that she got worked up over not being able to host as well as she would have wanted to. She almost forgot that Jesus was there in her house. She forgot who he was. We know this based off of how she spoke of her sister. Imagine if Florence Pugh, right, came to my house and I was busy making tea and coffee and then I just started calling out Beth and Jade in front of her. I mean, it would have been really awkward. Martha became blind to her actions. I mean, that's just freaky to me. But actually, how often in our lives do we forget about what's important? because we're so busy. A lot of us here are uni students, right? Hands up if you're a uni student. Nice, that's a fair few. That was a good question to put in here, good. So, studying, socializing, food shopping, extracurricular activities, so on and so on. They're all justifiably important, right? I mean, we gotta eat. Maybe you don't, I do. We've got to have friends, got to make friends, got to pass our degrees. All of this takes time, dedication, devotion, commitment. But how often in the busyness do we think about what really matters? What's really important to us, to you as an individual? Martha thought the most important thing was to keep busy and project this image of herself to her guests and to Jesus that she, under pressure, was this cool as a cucumber, productive host. Martha projected this image of busyness 
and productivity because it made her feel successful and useful. How many of us are joined up at the hip to our uni laptops? <laughs> nice. I think you're all being quite shy and it's pretty much all of us. This isn't necessarily a bad thing, but how often do you exit the work chasm and consider the bigger things of life? I'm not saying that being productive with our uni work is an attempt to project a false image of ourselves to our peers, but we often feel that being productive because we are, let me say that again. I'm not saying that being productive with our uni work is an attempt to project a false image of ourselves to our peers, but often we feel productive because we are busy, right? I mean, I feel that that resonates with me. But when does busyness become blind distraction? Often we think we can put off thoughts of, where did we come from? What's the meaning of life? Does what I do and say actually matter? Who would really be bothered, I mean really be bothered, if the earth was swallowed by the sun? Why is there suffering? Personally, I know I procrastinate these thoughts because I think, <laughs> well, some scientist bigwig out there will give me an answer that'll sufficiently satisfy me, so I won't think too long or too hard about it. If I had a penny for every time I thought of an impossible question that related to my faith or what truth is, got too overwhelmed, shut it down, and just thought, well, Harry, our wonderful student guy, he's pretty smart. He'll probably know, so I'll just ask him and close the chapter on that. Why do I do it? We've all heard that phrase, ignorance is bliss, right? I ignore it because it makes me uncomfortable. So I avoid it, choosing only to stomach what I think I can handle. Whatever doesn't jeopardize my peace. My brother James is excellent at these sort of questions. It's actually kind of annoying. <laughs> and I catch myself relying upon his answers and justifications of them. How many of us realize that our internal stability is dependent upon things that could break, disappoint us, or people that could let us down? I'm not saying this to shame this behavior. I mean, I put my hand up and say that my life is fragile too. I rely upon things and people that could disappoint me. We realize that to live and experience life to the max is actually to be truly vulnerable. There's a quote from C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves. C.S. Lewis was that guy who wrote the Narnia series. For Narnia and for Aslan. Ringing the bells, yeah? Yeah? Cool, cool. So, he was commenting on some teaching from a man called St. Augustine, who's a well-known theologian from a long, 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 long time ago. Some sort of A.D., B.C. situation. Anyway, the quote reads, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, 
it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. I love the story of Mary and Martha because it challenges me to think about what I rely on for peace and stability. What do you rely on for peace and stability? Personally, I love swimming. I love baking. I've recently picked up knitting. Yes, I am 80 years old. Please don't judge me. But they make me happy. We realize our hearts are precious and should only be given to things that are worthy of them. Things we'd let our hearts be broken for. Things like love, validation. What do you think? Do you think they're worth it? We live in a world of quid pro quo, where a favor or advantage is granted in return for something. Essentially, you give and you get. We give our hearts to someone we love, and in return, they give us theirs. In this picture, we see love costs something, but in return, we receive the love and trust of an entire human being. Yes, there's cost and risk here because either party could damage the heart they hold. When we're vulnerable with others, we give them the opportunity to hurt us. That's obviously not their intention in this example that I'm presenting to you, but it's factually correct, right? So what can we do to keep our hearts from never being hurt or never being damaged? We do what C.S. Lewis said. We protect them by locking them up, lifeless, but safe. If we do this, though, are we living? What do you think? Are we being filled with love? Arguably no, right? I mean, well then what do we do with that? Sophie, what are you saying? If we can't use our hearts because they may get broken, but we can't not engage with our hearts because then we'd be lifeless and dead, what do we do? It's a catch-22. I realize things have got a bit heavy now. I'm gonna lighten the mood. Can I share a story? Is that okay? I'll try and be upbeat and funny, okay. Over my lifetime, my family have bought me some really amazing pairs of shoes for my birthday. I didn't get any this year, which I'm quite disappointed about, but that's fine. When I was 16, my parents bought me these teal snakeskin Doc Martens. Another year, my eldest brother Matthew bought me these amazing Converse. They were like white leather. And then the year after that, he got me these amazing like little red shoes from Italy. In case you don't know, shoes from Italy is kind of a big deal. <laughs> They're gorgeous. So I get these amazing shoes, and there's a point to me telling you this story. I'm not just bragging. Well, I am a little bit, but you've got to seize the opportunity, don't you? I thought I was going to get more of a laughter, but it's fine. <laughs> Each and every time I got a beautiful new pair of shoes, I would spend about six months just looking at them, sitting in my wardrobe. In my wardrobe, my shoes stay looking beautiful. They don't crease. I don't wreck them by jumping in a muddy puddle. I have no self-control when it comes to puddles. I don't know about you. I would preserve these shoes. They were an expensive gift from my family. To me, they held sentimental value. Time would pass, though, and my parents would ask me, 
do you not like your Doc Martens? Like, what is up with you? And Matthew would come up to me and he'd be like, yo, what's wrong with the Converse? Why aren't you wearing them? There's like an offended tone to their voice. I valued the shoes and what they meant to me more than their original purpose. These shoes can only offer me semi-permanent service and that shoes wear out and my feet grow. What's worse is that when I do decide to put the shoes on, I become overprotective, overbearing. I start walking like a right weirdo because I'm trying not to scuff them. I didn't enjoy them. Wearing them became a task as opposed to a joy. Like with the heart in a box example, we often are so scared to risk taking our beautiful heart out the box that like with the shoes, we don't use it. We forget what the purpose of our hearts, of my shoes, are. We become blind to our actions and our mentalities, whether we're consciously aware we're doing it or not. Because I recognize the value and worth of my heart, I didn't use it. Because to use it means at some point it's likely going to be subject to damage, maybe pain. It probably won't look as pretty as when it did when I first got it. When we compare Martha and Mary, though, we see Mary uses her heart slightly differently to that of Martha. Mary doesn't appear to be keeping her heart in a box where she deems it safe from harm, but otherwise lifeless, right? Mary exposes her heart to Jesus. She's not hiding it and filling that lifelessness with those little luxuries C.S. Lewis was talking about. Why is Mary then so content with just being sat at Jesus' feet? The image of Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus represents where Mary gets her worth and her value from. Mary wasn't concerned about what she could accomplish or achieve because her worth and value wasn't based off of how shiny she could show everyone her heart was. All the external stuff. Her value and worth was based off of what Jesus said it was. Mary's desire to be close with Jesus was born out of extravagant acts of worship. It was not common in those days to allow women to be disciples of a rabbi. A rabbi is like it's another name for a teacher. Jesus was in the habit of bucking the trend of his current time by having female disciples. And although Mary wasn't officially one of Jesus' disciples, she sat amongst the men who would have likely sat at the feet of Jesus, their rabbi. Women doing this was really frowned upon. Mary, however, didn't care. She was okay with standing out. Even when Martha rebuked Mary for not helping her and for sitting next to Jesus the way that she was, Mary stood her ground. Furthermore, Jesus respected this act of extravagant worship by saying that Mary had chosen to do the right thing. Jesus' love should elicit a response from us just like that of Mary's. Ephesians 2.10, which is a book found in the New Testament of the Bible, says this, that we are God's masterpiece. Jesus describes us as his workmanship or, or his art. Jesus also says that we, human beings are what God cares about, what he values the most. 
He says in Matthew 10:29-31, also book found in the New Testament, what's the price of a pet canary? Some loose change, right? And God cares what happens to it even more than you do. He pays even greater attention to you down to the last detail, even numbering the hairs on your head. So don't be intimidated by all this bully talk. You're worth more than a million canaries. Now, I know that mentioning canaries can sound dead weird, but it is super important to apply context when we read the Bible. Back in the day, they would have been super cheap. So if we were to put it in today's context, it would be like talking about goldfish, right? If God cares even more about a self-sufficient goldfish than we ever could, but he is even more concerned with us, what does that tell us about God? Mary takes Jesus at his word and roots herself in these things. What does God ask of Mary in return? What does God ask of Martha? What does God ask of us? God asks us to put down the pots and pans in the kitchen, put down the podcasts, put down the music, the distractions, because he's got something better. Something that isn't semi-permanent like my shoes. Truth is, Jesus asks very little in return for the permanent love and sacrifice he's given for us. Jesus asks us to take our heart out of that box that we've put it in and give it to him. The purpose of you is not to spend your whole life protecting that box. That's not your job. That's not your purpose. The purpose of you is just to give that heart of yours to someone who won't harm it. Jesus asks us to trust him with our hearts so that he can be the one to fill it with love and validation that will never run out. You can start to use your heart without the worry of it becoming broken. You can start to relax and feel free because the center of you, the thing that gives you life, is now safe and secure in the hands of someone we know we can trust. Someone who values us more than anyone ever has or ever will be able to. That's the purpose of you. Mary got this, Martha didn't. You might be thinking, well, how can we trust that Jesus won't just do us dirty like others have, or we have to ourselves? If someone is willing to die an embarrassing, publicly exposed, humiliating death, just so that you'd have the option to live a life with a heart that's alive and eternally safe. You see, Jesus does something very unnatural in the human world. He exhibits the highest form of grace. Now, grace is something, it's like giving something so big or precious that the one who receives it couldn't ever possibly deserve it. That's what grace is. Grace is unnatural in our world of quid pro quo, of give and take, because here Jesus just gives. Now, we're not under obligation to give back, but we see the comparison between Mary and Martha. That's what giving your heart to Jesus looks like. That's what relationship with Jesus looks like. So in my fairly unbiased opinion, I'd say you can trust him. 
The story of Martha and Mary is a great comparison of what relationship with Jesus could be like. Most of us, if we're honest, are Martha, right? I know I am. Running around like headless chickens, desperate to control the situations in our lives that are stressful. But Jesus calls Martha away from this, this quid pro quo. Martha's need to do and give in order to get fulfillment. Jesus puts forward to her a suggestion to sit and be filled with a different type of validation, a different type of fulfillment. He uses Mary as an example of what Martha could be like. If you feel like Martha, like someone who has chosen to be busy in order to be fulfilled, then I challenge you this week just to take a moment to stop and think about three things. One, what is important to you? Two, why are these things important to you? And three, are those things the things that make you feel like you are enough? As we close now, and you guys have been amazing listening to me, thank you. Let's answer these questions for Mary and Martha, shall we? So for Mary, hearing from Jesus was the most important thing because her life was founded upon who he was and what he said about her and her people. For Mary, Jesus' word was enough. She didn't need anything else. She didn't want anything else. It was enough. For Martha, it was all about what image she could project of herself to the world and to Jesus. This was what was most important to her, as this was where her identity lay. But these things clearly didn't make Martha feel like she was enough. Martha viewed her life like my shoes, or like that heart in a box. She was scared to accept that life comes with messiness. You can't wear shoes without the risk of them being scuffed. And you can't love with your heart without it becoming truly vulnerable. Jesus isn't concerned with what we can bring him or do for him. He only cares about us. The us that is totally stripped of all that stuff we only want the world to see. Jesus loves Martha despite her messiness. Because what he cares about the most is her heart. As we close now, I want to invite you, if you feel like a Martha, and you want to step into a new chapter. You want to start living in the freedom relationship with Jesus can offer you. Then close your eyes now, only if you feel comfortable, obviously, and pray this prayer with me in your heart. You don't have to say it aloud, but Jesus knows if you're talking or if you're responding to this. Father God, for all of those who are sat here in this room thinking, yeah, I'm a Martha. I'm someone that is trying to stay busy and distracted in order to fill a void, in order to fill an emptiness. If you're sat there and you're thinking, something that was said this evening is making my heart race and is making me sweat behind the knees. If you're someone that wants to step into a new chapter, if you want to take that heart of yours out of a box and give it to someone who's going to fill it with love that will never disappoint you, 
then just say yes to this. Say yes to Jesus. Say, Jesus, I'm sorry for all the things that I've done that have put distance between me and you. Jesus, I'm sorry for thinking that I could fill my heart with everything that I needed to feel like I was enough. Jesus, I don't want to fight anymore. I don't want to fight to fill my heart anymore. Would you come and fill me with your love? Would you release me from this obligation to be the only one who fights for myself? I want you to come and fight for me. Come and fight for my battles. If you're sat there and you're thinking, I want to get to know this Jesus a little bit better, then as we say, Amen, I want you to ask Jesus to come into your life, come into your heart. I want you to imagine taking your heart out of that box and giving it to him now. Amen. If that was you and you made that step and you want to talk about it or if you have any questions, please feel free to come and speak to me. But there are loads of other people that you could come and speak to here. Tabs and Kate at the front, Harry. Don't leave without saying anything. It's a really important conversation and a really big step that you've made.